Taking you inside the world of music, this is Inside Music Cast with Rick Such and Eddie Cabello. On this episode, Inside Music Cast welcomes David Hungate. Welcome to Inside Music Cast, a podcast devoted to musicians, fans, and the people that make music happen. I'm Rick Such. And I'm Eddie Cabello. Welcome, everybody, from around the world. And as Rick mentioned, Inside Music Cast is devoted to bringing you candid interviews, news, and information with the musicians, fans, and people that make music happen. That's right. This is the podcast that goes beyond the pop star and features the talent behind the talent. So if you're ready, let's get started. In the music business, you can't always plan where your career takes you. Most of the time, it just falls into place over the course of many years. Our guest has had the good fortune of having the pieces of his career fall into place by calling the right shots at the right time. He is the consummate session musician and one of the most respected bassists in the industry. As an original member of the rock band Toto, David Hungate provided a rhythmic anchor to a band that delivered such classic songs as Rosanna and Africa to the world. From his beginnings with Sonny and Cher to his Grammy-winning Toto work to Randy Travis, David has never been removed from the A-list of bassists because of his ability to provide the right groove for the right music. He left the L.A. scene for all the right reasons and along the way built a network of premier accounts in Nashville that just won't stop calling, such as Toby Keith, April Barrows, Brooks and Dunn, Neil Diamond, Manhattan Transfer, Reba, Eddie Rabbit, Linda Ronstadt, Boz Gags, and Kenny Rogers. We welcome David Hungate to Inside Music Cast. David, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. Good, good, good. Hey, listen, instead of uh, starting up with a typical where it all began type of question line, uh, I'd like to ask a little bit of what's been keeping you busy over the, the past years. And I know that this might sound cliche and it's not intended to, but, uh, you know, you've seen artists come and go, instrumentalists, and uh, uh, but you're still doing your, your thing and, and, and you're keeping really busy. So how, how do you keep it going? How, what, what keeps you fresh these days? Man, I don't know. No. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I I always thought it would be over when I was about 40. You know? <laughs> and I've lived, you know, I've, I've finally, just in the last couple of years, I've kind of, you know, I took my union pension a couple of years ago, so I kind of quit worrying about it finally, and it's right. really good. But I always felt like it was going to be over next month. Mm-hmm. You know? So I just try to keep learning new things. Man. Yeah. That's, that's the key, I, I think. You know, I try to keep learning new styles, and you know, like I, I hadn't really played upright bass till I moved to Nashville, and I uh, got into that, and I've been playing a lot of uh, guitar the last few years. I kind of got serious about that. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always played horns, and I, and I like a lot of different styles of music. Right. So, yeah, that kind of helps. And you're you know? finding that kind of variety there, and where you are right now, right? Right, yeah, it's gotten a lot more so in the last few years. There's mm-hmm. so many guys who were in L.A. in the 70s that right. are here now, Larry Carlton. Yeah, exactly. Paul Lime, John Hobbs, John Jarvis, uh, you know, Dan cool. Dugmore, just great, great players from, from L.A. So Why the migration? Why, why did, uh, you know, you guys have been played, did your stint in the, you know, in the 70s and 80s in the L.A. music scene over there? And wh- why the migration? Why does somebody want to come back to Nashville well, and hear that approach? Anything? I came, uh, the first people, I, you know, I was in L.A. in the 70s. I had actually done a project in Nashville in 71 before I moved to L.A., and I I thought it was a pretty cool place. And I, being from a small town in Missouri, it felt kind of like home, and my family's pretty close and all that stuff. So that had some to do with it, a lot to do with it. And, uh, 
you know, that was that was my reason. And, you know, I, pretty much from the time I got to L.A., I was trying to build up enough accounts in Nashville that I could move. You know, uh-huh. it took, took nine years, but, uh, you know, it, it was it was worth the wait. And I'm really, I got to do a lot of stuff in L.A. that I sure. couldn't have done here, of course, you know, and uh, very grateful for that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it had to do with a lot of lifestyle reasons. I had... Uh, just started a family, and uh, you know, and I grew up in a rural area, and uh, kind of wanted to have that for my kids. Sure. So, uh, so that was my thing. You know, I'm basically a redneck at heart. So <laughs> here I am. Hey, David, you said you're from Missouri, right? That's not what every publication out there. Yeah, is. Really. you're from Texas. Well, I, yeah, <laughs> I was, was going to say. Yeah, <laughs> no, you're from uh, LA. You're I've from been LA. trying to get all music guide to correct that for three years. <laughs> they, they, some of, in some places I'm from LA, and some places I'm from Texas. I went to college in Texas, which may be where that came mm. from. But, uh-huh. uh, but you're from Missouri. Yeah, Troy, Missouri, yeah. the uh, music mecca of the Midwest. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, over the years. You've played, you know, everything from soft rock and jazz, pop rock, you know, adult contemporary gospel, soul. And do you live for it all or do you just dig one genre the most? Yeah, really. The stuff I've always dug the most has been like jazz from the 20s through the 40s, you know. Which, mm-hmm. And I like a Western swing from, you know, that kind of in that same bag, too. That's mm-hmm. always been my favorite music. And cool. that's probably the stuff I've gotten to do the least over the years, but, uh, you know, I, it's all a challenge, you know, mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm, I've always considered myself a, a studio musician rather than a, a, a live performer type musician. Mm-hmm. I kind of, I was very fortunate that, that when I got to North Texas State in the mid sixties, I met Dean Parks. He, oh yeah. He's That's a right. year older than me. And he's the first guy I ever knew who, you know, he told me there was such a thing as being a studio musician. And at that time, he's, you know, we were all going to, I was going to be a school teacher, you know, and make five grand a year back then. And was, <laughs> these studio musicians in Dallas are making up to 30000 a year. So, Jesus, man, where oh. do I sign on? Uh-huh. And he's, Dean's a very, he's a genius and a very methodical, analytical type guy. Mm-hmm. And he started practicing what he would need to be able to do to be a great studio guy he had the musical sense anyway but he would practice with a metronome set at the slowest possible setting you know and he placed eighth notes like in unison with each click you know and just mm-hmm. hear the inter- intervening beats in his head stuff like that he would come up with these little exercises and he's very extremely conscious of time and and uh very tasteful, and he was like my mentor, you know, he was my big brother, and kind of, you know, if it hadn't been, I've been really lucky throughout my career, there have been four or five geniuses, you know, that I've managed to be kind Mm -hmm. of part of, close to, and and benefit and learn from, you know, there was, Dean was the first, and then uh, Jeff, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, David Page, and uh, Chet Atkins, you know, after I got to Nashville, so... I've just been, you know, I've, I've been blessed with that. I've, uh, I couldn't have done it on my own, you know. I didn't have a clue, you know, when sure. I got started. So I ran into Dean and uh, got into the idea of being a studio musician. And, uh, you know, part of that is just, uh, it's like being a character actor, you know. You're going, you're going to be a, a judge one day and an alcoholic the next. And, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, the, the leading man. And, you know, it's just, you're playing a different role 
uh, but depending on each situation. And, and it just requires you to know a lot of stuff about music and a lot of different styles. And, and you know, that's not any great intellectual feat on my part. I just happen to be interested in it, mm-hmm. you know, in stuff and and what makes a, a certain feel and, you know, what the bass needs to be doing in any given situation. And, right. and that's just... That that probably more than anything is kind of what's kept me going. You know, yeah, I yeah. haven't, I've never been. There, there are guys who are like you know the disco bass player, you know, or the the fusion bass player or whatever, you know. But you know, I've always kind of tried to do a, an acceptable job at any given style. I may not be the best at anything, but mm-hmm. except you know, I'm pretty good at covering a lot of bases. You know, that's kind of what I've sure. tried to do and. You know, being able to read is is was really important. And mm-hmm. When I got to L.A., it's not that important in Nashville, but uh, so I guess to to make a uh, short story, that's kind of how I managed to hang on. Sure. Well, you've uh, definitely been able to carve, you know, the name David Hungate in you know in, in the tree that has a bunch of other incredible musicians. You know, we've uh, earlier this year we talked to Lee Sklar, Freddie Washington, and. All right. uh, and, uh, you know, when you... heroes. Oh, gee whiz, yeah. Yeah, when I was just a young boy starting out to play, I used to listen to Lee's stuff, Did you? you know. <laughs> <laughs> when everybody was a young boy, they used to listen to Lee. <laughs> Lee, are you listening? Yeah, no, he's, Lee. <laughs> he's actually the only working bass player who's older than me. I think he's about a year older than I am. But, but seriously, he was, he had a couple, three years head start on me in the recording thing. And, and he was one of the, when I first heard the, uh, the, you know his early stuff, James Taylor stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just fell in love with with his playing. And yeah. So I've been a, a huge fan of his forever. Yeah. Well, you're definitely on the the list of who's who on. But uh, you know, I'd like to maybe go into a, another line of questioning. You you've had the opportunity to work in the LA scene back, of course, in the early years, and so that was prior to the Pro Tools and the internet, right? So yeah. um, you know. Now, back then, talk to me a little bit about because there wasn't Pro Tools and so forth. I mean, what was the the biggest requirement? Were there stiffer requirements for session players that really, really had to be good as opposed to today? Is there a difference in the in the players? Uh, yeah, you know the the story about the the Pro Tools producer. Hmm. He says uh, that was terrible. Guys, come on in. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> How true, right? <laughs> I tell you when it really started to change. Really started to change when the disco thing happened, like in the late seventies, and yeah. they were doing these twelve-minute disco singles, the whole side of sure. an LP, right. and nobody can groove for twelve minutes. <laughs> and so they'd have a click track going, and. Uh, so after the click, and then about the same time, the Lindrum came along. Sure, thank you, Roger. Yeah, so guys started, <laughs> guys started doing that. But none of the Toto's, I think the only Toto thing I ever played on that had any, that wasn't just played, was Africa, and that had a drum loop that right. stuff it played. You know, all that stuff was just, you know, you just had to get the right guys in the room and, and play it. And mm-hmm. what a click track does... Uh, is it ensures that it'll always be vaguely acceptable, and it also ensures that it'll never really feel magical. Right. You know what I mean? Sure, it's, sure. It's a drag, and but and when I first got to Nashville, nobody used clicks. But you know, maybe ten or twelve years ago, maybe even more, 
they started doing it. And I lobbied for it, you know, because really? I was used to playing with Jeff, you know, and, right. and, and so nobody else felt that great. <laughs> and I got here, <laughs> so the, the next best are always terrible here at first. They're, they're the best in the world now, yeah. but, you know, you get in there and there's bad headphones and it's really hard to hear anything and the tracks felt really floaty. So, I, you know, I would lobby for guys to try using a click, you know, or play to a wind drum or something, and that caught on. And now there are all these great players, they're great drummers, you know, and they don't really need them, but it's got to be like a producer's habit, you know. It's so, uh, you know, it's. Yeah, I, I feel like one of those old gods, the old jazzers. I used to hear complaining about rock and roll, you know, when I was seventeen. <laughs> <laughs> it ain't like the old days, and it really isn't. But yeah. Anyway. Hey, David, um, yeah. sticking with the Nashville thing, some of our – a couple of our past guests uh, that are based in Nashville have kind of said this, but would you – or have agreed to this, but would you say that the Nashville scene today is sort of reminiscent of the L.A. scene from the 70s and 80s? Well, it's the closest there is to it mm-hmm. any place. Yeah. You know, New York isn't it, and uh, L.A. isn't it anymore from what I understand. I talked to – Somebody a while back who's a guitar player in L.A. who works all the time. He said, I say, are you busy? He said, yeah, I'm working all the time, but I never see any musicians. Right, right. That's common. That's <laughs> really? a common response with everyone we've talked yeah, to. Now, you know, it's just, uh, it's just the modern way. You know, I've, right. and a lot of guys are going out and doing more live playing now to kind of compensate for that mm-hmm. and for the lack of session work, you know, compared to what it used to be. But, you know, it's just, it's just the way it is, and, it, and it's... Uh, it's not going to go back, I don't think. Mm-hmm. You get the chance occasionally to go out and tour with an act. I know that uh, last fall you uh, did a promotional tour with Neil Diamond. Yeah, that was funny. Uh, David Page got me in Neil's rhythm section back right after Sonny and Cher split up. And yeah. we were all wondering what we are going to do back in 74. And he played with Neil, and he put in a good word. Emery Gordy and I were the two-headed bass player. You know, we'd switch off on bass and guitar. And really? So I, I rehearsed with them for like two years. They paid us like two fifty a week to rehearse two or three nights a week, and Neil never showed up. So we <laughs> <laughs> we'd sit around and play bluegrass tunes and 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 drink and you know just party three nights a week on the on the card. And and uh, David Foster was in that band for a while. Wow! Really. Wow! And I remember one time we went to went to get something to eat, and David Foster had to borrow a dollar from me, which <laughs> you know. Here's the big question: Did that he ever, was a long time ago? But, did he Did he ever pay you back? <laughs> yeah, really. No, he hasn't. I've been keeping track of the interest. You know? But uh, anyway, and and Neil fired him. So oh, really? Yeah, oh, he, got, he got fired by Neil, and I got fired because I wanted to take my girlfriend on the road for the tour. When they finally did get a tour, and I didn't do it, so I I had to. Two years with Neil, right. and the, the bass player Riney Press, who came on at that time, had never missed a gig for like thirty, what would it be thirty years, <laughs> and and he had a health scare last fall. It turned out to be nothing, but he was really scared, and he thought he wasn't going to be able to tour anymore. So he called me. <laughs> so there you go. I went back after thirty years, and it was like most of the same guys in the band. It was it was great. I was just. I just went up and did four days in New York, and we did the TV shows, you know. So you didn't get the open card in two years to rehearse? No, we didn't even have to. I, you know, we just did stuff from the new album, so I had to learn like three songs. So. Hey, when you passed by here uh, on the, on that tour with Neil Diamond uh, last fall, were you? did you come by? Uh, were you at the Indianapolis show? No, I just I just went to New York. We did The View. And, really? 
couple other, you know, we did like three TVs Today show. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all I did. That's it. Not, you didn't really. So that was my big road experience for the last 26 years. Right. One of my early goals was to to get off the road. You know, I I enjoy the studio thing because I got a I got a short attention span. Part of it, you know. After, <laughs> I've, after I've learned to show, even if it's Toto, you know, it gets it stops being as much fun. After, sure. After a while, and yeah, uh, those guys have been able, been able to just keep it going. Oh man, I mean, that takes a special individual to go well, at it hard like these guys, right? Well, like I said, I'm a redneck. You know, I, I got to have my, <laughs> I got to have my farm and my fresh air stuff sitting around, and mm-hmm. and you know, and, and I just don't travel well. Yeah, it's it's great for the guys to do, and I had a great time with it. You know, sure. going out with Neil for a few days, it was all first class and. Right. Everybody in the band was a grown-up, and you know it was uh, it was really fun. And you know I could see going out for a limited thing once in a while, but yeah. Anyway, well, growing up in Troy, Missouri, and then going to school in Texas, you know, how did you made your way out to L.A. eventually? And and what was it like for you? Just was there culture shock? I mean, what what was it like for you hitting the L.A. scene? Well, yeah, it was it was extreme culture shock. You know, I. The way I got to L.A., I told you I was in this band that Dean Parks and I at North Texas started a little rock band, and uh, Matt Benton was our drummer, and Tom Canning, who did a lot of stuff with Al Jarreau later. Oh, sure, major. I love Tom. keyboard player. So, yeah, right. You know, we mostly played improvised moods, you know, hippie music, and I think we knew like 10 cover tunes or something. But uh, uh, Sonny and Cher came through the area doing a couple concerts when they were trying to make a comeback. I guess that was in '70. And this uh, promoter knew we could read, you know, and so he hired us to, to back him on these concerts. And uh, they were impressed, you know. We just, you know, we sat down and read it and played like a rock band, you know. And so they uh, asked us about going on the road with them. Listening and, chair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so uh, the rest, I stayed in school for another year. The rest of the guys went on and went out, and then when they quit, Dean had told them he'd get a replacement guitar player, you know, they were all going to get replacements, and uh, so I had, uh, yeah, he, he uh, called me, and they were going to be playing in Dallas, and do what I want to audition for it, and I said, well, send me a tape, you know, because I, you know, I played, a l- I'd been playing bass for a couple years at that time, and had played a little guitar, too, but not much, you know, not, not like Dean Park, so he sent me the show, and I I learned that, you know, and and I found out on the first show they fired the guy they'd hired to replace Dean as conductor. So I was hmm. supposed to conduct and play guitar. Wow! <laughs> and, How do you do that? And, well, fortunately, it was at the Fairmont Hotel in Dallas, and there were all these horn players. A lot of them were guys I'd gone to school with, and the older guys were friends. And I'd give a big wrong cue, you know, and they'd ignore it and follow the lead <laughs> trumpet player. And Sonny and Cher were looking the other way, so they didn't know. They thought I did a great job, you know. So I, I got the gig, thanks to those guys. <laughs> and then I was going to stay for two weeks and make a little extra money, and uh, I was pretty happy in Dallas. I was doing sessions and a lot of gigs and stuff. And a couple weeks after that, they uh, got the TV show, and Sonny says, well, you know, we'll... We'll let you get you guys an audition for the TV show. We can't guarantee it, but we'll get you a shot, you know. So, uh, so I moved to LA when the TV show started. Uh, that's that's how I got there. But you know, it was just being in LA and playing with all these the guys in the uh, the studio band were all 
old pros, a lot of old big band sure. trumpet players, just incredible musicians. So did you get the gig for television also? Yeah. That's awesome. I was playing guitar first, you know, right. and then the bass player flaked out, and I switched over, which thankfully, you know, back to the bass chair. But um, right. the biggest shock I got, though, after I'd been out there about a month, I guess it was early 72, Dean Parks once again said he's going to be doing some uh, some demos at Leon Russell's house. And mm-hmm. it, it doesn't pay anything, and it starts at midnight, but Jim Keltner is going to be playing drums. Oh, wow. I'd heard about Keltner from Dean forever. Sure. So I said, yeah, I'll do it, man. So I got there, and they were already running the tune, the drums in the other room, and I put on the headphones, and God damn, Keltner was kicking, man. I'd never <laughs> heard him <before> like that. <laughs> and we made a finished the take and I went in to introduce myself and opened the door and here's this little bitty shrimp in there man <laughs> and I said hi Dave I'm getting you Jeff or Carl and that's when I met Jeff holy wow. cow and uh, I still got a tape of that that stuff we did that night do you realize yeah and he was fully formed 16 years old played as great as he ever did oh my god and uh, we had a really good drummer on the Sonny and Cher band at that time and uh, I said, screw it, man. I, you know, I started lobbying, and I managed to get them to hire Jeff. And uh, So you're uh, the guy that opened the door for, for Jeff in, no, in, in that well, game? Anybody who heard him would have, I yeah. think. But I yeah. happened to be there at the right yeah. time. And, right. So, uh, and then three months later, he got Paige on the gig. Uh-huh. But I guess hearing Jeff, at, at that age, you know, I was like 23. Yeah. The week before I took the Sonny and Cher gig, I, I thought I was going to go out with Woody Herman. You know, they called me, and then I did the Sonny and Cher thing instead. But I'd been playing with all these great jazz players at school and, and thought I knew my stuff, you know. And, uh, man, hearing this kid at 16, and then I heard his brother Mike, and then I heard uh, Paige, and uh, all these guys, man, and, and just kids, you know. And, it, it man, it was a wake-up call, you know. Man, I got to i got to get good enough to play with these guys, you know. So uh, that was the biggest shock, you know, musically. And then just culturally, of course, it was it was like Dallas only, a lot bigger. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Were you, um, on that note of, uh, you know, uh, hopping on with, with Sonny and Cher and meeting uh, Jeff, um, did you by, ha- by chance uh, work on the, the Seals and Crofts gig at all with uh, Paige and those guys? Or not? Yeah. You did? Yeah, we uh, we actually even toured with him. We did a record with him called "Unborn Child," back mm-hmm. yeah. and we played on a couple more after that. Get closer, and um, sure, yeah. Paige was uh, they were talking about how picky Jimmy Seals. <laughs> oh yeah, was yeah. that true? Big this man. My uh, my son Noah is a drummer. Yeah, and uh, and he got the Jimmy Seals gig like two years ago. You know, and he he played with him about a year, and he finally you know Jimmy decided he had to try somebody else but he's still picky you know really and Noah's a great player but uh yeah so your son was playing with on the, yeah right? he played uh like he played with him a year ago jimmy really? and his brother danny are doing all the old seals and crofts but uh anyway jimmy's still jimmy yeah we did <laughs> that stuff and uh we quit doing the road stuff because uh Paige's mom wouldn't let him fly in these they used to rent these little twin engine planes you yeah know, little twin engine planes and one night we flew through a thunderstorm and uh, over the appalachian someplace you know smoky mountains <laughs> and uh, we thought we thought that was curtains man and uh, after that page and you know all of us kind of agreed not to 
to do the road thing anymore. Right. Which was okay, but uh, I want to talk about a little bit about uh, you know, your work with with Boss Gags, and when you guys uh, basically, um, you know, even before Toto, you had hooked up with the guys, and and um, how how did you basically trip over the the Boss Gags deal? He was uh, a new newcomer, and he had a new album coming out, and well, he, uh, he did some session work. We got hooked up with Boss through uh, Les Dudek, and Boss was producing Les, and I think Jeff knew Les, mm-hmm. and. Suggested he use Paige and me on the on the Les Dudek sessions, and that yeah. was like our audition for Boz. That was maybe six months before we started Silk Degrees. Sure, that was in September '75. We started cutting Silk Degrees. How long did it actually take to to cut the album? I don't know, maybe two weeks. That's about it. Two weeks or less. It seems like I've I've got all my old date books someplace. You know, mm-hmm. I'll look I'll look up something for people, but it wasn't. You know, it started like 7, and we played at 1 or 2 in the morning, and it was real loose, you know, because nobody really knew who Boz was, you know, and and uh, the tunes weren't really completed. I mean, Paige had some uh, some feels and changes, you know, together, and sure. Boz had a few melody lines together on most of the tunes. They were and no lyrics, as I recall. Wow. So we, we made these tracks, and, and it was just loose, man, and that's why it was, was special, I think. Yeah. Well, you know, Silk Degrees was such a phenomenal collection of songs. and songs are just incredible. Oh, they are. They are. But the bass groove, you know, in my mind, and I think in probably most everyone's mind, really pushed songs like Lowdown and Lido Shuffle, you know, over the top. Pushed is right. And uh, (laughs) I was young and crazy and tended to play on top of the beat, but it was, (laughs) you know, it had a a thing, you know. And, Uh and, uh, yeah, that's... uh, Another th- thing about Jeff, Jeff used to say, man, I can't play shuffles. You know, I just won't play shuffles. <laughs> I can't play shuffles at all. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. There's a couple shuffles on the Seals and Cross stuff, and he really struggled with them, man. He was like, you know, it was really a bad thing. I forget. We did Lido. He brought this Lido shuffle tune in, you know, and, and uh, after they got a test pressing of the record, Jeff called me when I went over to his apartment listen to it. Lido Shuffle came on, man, like three bars in. I said, man, you can play shuffles. No <laughs> doubt. <laughs> he just grinned. You know, he'd figured out a way to play shuffles uh-huh. you know, and how. And you're right. He, he did have a special way with shuffles. I mean, there was... And I was playing busy because I knew he couldn't play shuffles and I was trying to help him out. You know, I was probably getting in his way playing the I mean, at that time, the guys that really, you know, were known for the shuffles were, were pretty, yeah. you know, and then, yeah. uh, but m- man, I've, when I've heard uh, Jeff do a couple of his renditions and variations of the shuffle, I'm like, my God, you can do yeah. shuffles. Yeah, well, he, you know, and he knew it immediately. He mm-hmm. had that grin, you know, that, <laughs> that, like nobody else. Yeah. He knew it. He, he figured out the shuffle. Right. Well, Lowdown, you know, um, you know, just one of the cuts of the year. He won R&B Song of the Year back in 76. Yeah. And it was one of those. It was a two-part bass line. And, but it just seemed to squeeze right in between disco and funk. You know, it had that yeah. one groove. And there wasn't a right. place for it. But it, it, it really it, it tore up the dance floors and everything. But tell us a little bit about on that track, on, on Lowdown, how did the groove really happen? I mean, how did, how did you build it up? You said it was a real loose session. Yeah. Well, that bump groove, you know, bump, bump, bump thing. With yeah, the little hammer thing going. Some yeah. people were doing that then, and it was like the hip thing. And then that pull-off thing, I had heard, uh, I think it was Dr. John, the right place at the wrong time, the bass player, <laughs> uh-huh. doesn't pull it off, you know, but he just, just plays that, uh, he 
thing mm-hmm. in, in the intro or something. And, you know, I was screwing around with that. And when we, we were jamming, like, between takes or before, you know, it wasn't, we weren't taking it seriously, running it down. And, and you know, Paige pointed out, man, that, that thing is cool, you know. Yeah. Put, put that in, you know. So we ended up doing that. And then mm-hmm. I kind of got into my Chuck Rainey bag on the overdub on the bridge and, you know. <laughs> you know, those those Silk Degree sessions had to be pretty special. And in, in many ways, I mean, it, wouldn't you agree that it was sort of a precursor to what was about to follow with Toto's debut? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah it was, you know, page or somebody called it Toto's first record, you know. <laughs> yeah, really. And, uh, and as a result of Silk Degrees, we started getting hit on by record companies to be a band, you know. We didn't have to go out and really beat the streets. And right after that, we did some demos. Uh, mostly it was Jeff and Paige. They just went in and keyboard and drums, and then we overdubbed everything else. We did Miss Sun, and I, I think it was Steve or Caro that brought Steve Lukather into the scene, man. And, you know, I, I heard Steve's overdubs on those demos before I met Steve, and I was like, what planet is this guy from? Man? So. <laughs> hey, David, I want to segue now. To, right, I want to dive right into Toto here. You know, I, I'm a huge Toto fan, and I pride myself in knowing a lot of inside Toto trivia. But, but I'm curious to know, you know, how you ended up joining Toto, and was mm-hmm. there any particular reason that you said yes to joining Toto? I mean, you had plenty of session work going, and and uh, and you know, you you kind of left that for a while to go on tour and and to, and to do studio work with those guys. Yeah. Well, you know, we'd been on the road for like two years all together with Sonny and Cher, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. playing together every night and talking about doing a band someday so it was like we were all involved to some degree or other throughout the whole development of it you know david page was of course the main instigator and the main writer and and jeff and uh, you know i was kind of the comical sidekick because you know i'd been <laughs> on the road with him and we got along well musically and right. yeah there's a funny story so kind of on that line uh, after after a uh, hold the line became a hit you know and yeah all of a sudden, we weren't just studio guys. We were a rock band, you know. And so we called Jeff, I think, called a band meeting and says, you know, guys, we're a band now. We can't just be playing on everybody's sessions, you know. We'll dilute our stuff, you know. So, we, so we're going to have to just quit doing dates for other people. So I said, okay, you know. So I went home, and next day I called all my accounts, you know. And I said, you know, we're, we decided we're not going to do sessions anymore. Da-da-da. So... <laughs> A couple of weeks later, we're at a Toto rehearsal, and Jeff's not there. And uh, somebody said, where is he? And he says, oh, he's at a session. He'll be a little bit late. You know? <laughs> so I was the only one who canceled all their sessions. And, but it wasn't anything malicious or planned, and it was just the way Toto worked. You know, just, yeah. we'd, we'd have a great idea and agree to it, and then everybody kind of forget it. It was just one of those things. Yeah. Hey, I read somewhere that, uh, you know, you're, I like what you said. It really wasn't the band coming together. It was we were already a band, but we were just yeah, playing for Sunny yeah. and Cher. So my, my question is, I, I read um, somewhere that uh, there were actually labels, uh, record labels, that were actually making you guys uh, some some offers to put a band together. Is right, that true? That's what I was saying, like yeah, uh, yeah. when uh, after Silk Degrees came yeah. out, yeah. and it's kind of the word around town that people knew how the record was made and and. You know, Paige was on every tune, and he already had a good reputation as, like, the hot young guy to watch, as did Jeff, you know, and we kind of had a little 
reputation as a rhythm section going right. on already. Sure. So, yeah, uh, yeah, we got offers from people. I wasn't in on the negotiations, you know, so I don't know the details, but yeah. I know that it wasn't hard to get a record deal. It was like a question of choosing between two or three options. So. Right. Let's let's jump a little bit, uh, just uh, a little forward, just uh, and not too many, maybe just a few months from that time, because uh, the, when the first album, uh, the Toto, Toto album came out, uh, it went double platinum. That had you know the big song, uh, you know Hold the Line and Georgie Porgy and and any certain you know uh, you know recollection of of the the writing and development of that that tune. I mean that's your first record together. Where you're collaborating, uh, is there anything that you can pull from them from the memories there that that uh, that stand out? Well, as far as the as far as the writing, you know, that was a page tune, and he mm-hmm. just, we we would usually rehearse for a week or so before we went in the studio, yeah. and uh, you know, he'd bring tunes in and play them on the piano, and we'd come up with parts and kind of arrange them a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, so. That was just part of that process. You know, it was a pretty straight-ahead tune. Sure. Uh, somebody on one of the interviews called a page said, uh, yeah. uh, Danny Hughes <laughs> called it a doo-wop song. Right. You know? <laughs> well, it was. <laughs> Call it for what it is, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding, David. <laughs> I saw something recently on YouTube. Somebody hit me to it. It was a tape of a re- the Toto rehearsal. Goodbye, Eleanor, I think was the tune. Yeah. But really? I... I dial that thing up. I downloaded it laboriously on my dial-up modem. You know. <laughs> I finally got to watch it, and uh, that, that that just took me right back there, man, the rehearsal bit, because that 90% of the playing time with Toto was rehearsing and, yeah. you know, goofing around like that and just having fun, and that's how that stuff happened, man. Just right. The spirit, if you, you look at that, and that's the kind of spirit, man, Jeff's grinning and just you know, and Lukather's doing his thing, and and it's just all this joy, man, and just joy and excitement and intensity, and yeah. everybody's laughing, you know, except me. You know, I was trying to cover my part, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> seriously, <laughs> but you know, that was the, the spirit, man. It was just there wasn't a lot of formality about it. Right. You know? We just come in and. Pages have a tune, or Luke could have a tune, and and you know, we'd run it down, and and it would just come together. And then we went in the studio, and and it would be like you know first second take, right? So Some done deal. Obviously, there was the familiarity with with Page and and, uh, and Jeff Percaro, but you know, um, working with Steve Lukather, had you worked with him prior to to joining Toto? No, he says that I remember meeting him when he was like fifteen. He uh, he lived down the street from me in North Hollywood before I knew him, and I was at the little corner grocery when I was playing with Boz on the road, and he'd hmm. seen us, and he came up, Oh, hi, Mr. Honeyate, I'm Steve Lukather, I'm a guitar player. <laughs> you know? I said, yeah, sure, kid. <laughs> Get away from me. <laughs> and then he He's going to love that. A couple years later, but that. I never worked with him before, you know. And, you know, it, it, I, once again, the thing that strikes me from from being fifty eight years old now is how <laughs> young those guys were. I mean, I was young, but those guys, Luke and Steve Picard, are ten years younger than me, and Jeff and Page were six years younger than me. They were yeah. like <laughs> seventeen. Man, you were practically just, their father, man. Yeah, you know, they could barely <laughs> drive, you know. <laughs> and that's the amazing thing about it, you know. 
and they weren't they couldn't just play totem music man they could go in in anybody's sure. session and nail it you know they yeah. weren't just limited to being the playing the repertoire of their rock band you know it just yeah it was uh it's pretty amazing when you think about it well the first tour uh the first album it it launched you guys into a, a first tour am i correct yeah and uh were you on i think well she was it was that took you all the way to japan didn't that correct Let's see. We didn't go to Japan until no? 1980. The first tour did this. We uh, got our act together for the first tour. We did like three weeks mm-hmm. on Kauai at this Kauai Resort Hotel. Not a, not a bad gig. Not a bad great. gig. <laughs> <laughs> Except all the all the customers were like these honeymooning Japanese couples and oh. said, Toto, you know, toilet up on the yeah. marquee and they'd all <laughs> and laugh and take pictures, you know. And uh, so we did that. And then, I think before we did a concert, we had to do a, uh, uh, we had to play the CBS convention. We were their hot new band, right? Right. So in New Orleans. So we flew to New Orleans, and Jeff was like into art and, and style and just great at that stuff. And he had a girlfriend. He was into, you know, Keltner was into the Oriental stuff. Keltner would always wear like a little Japanese coat <laughs> type thing, or still does. <laughs> And so Jeff was into that, and uh, he had a girlfriend who was uh, made clothes, and and so she designed these like Japanese, very loose, long sleeve hanging things for us to wear on our first gig. Right, so there we didn't put them on until right before we went on stage. We'd never worn these things before; they weren't ready. So we put these things on. We go out there in front of the CBS crowd that's getting ready to spend millions on this new band that we hadn't signed yet. <laughs> and we count off a tune, and there's no guitar, and there's no bass. And I look down, and the sleeves on this thing were hanging down over the strings, man. <laughs> it was it was the biggest, you know, it was just a fiasco, and they, they signed us anyway, but I Thank still goodness. got that thing someplace. <laughs> Big old kimono on the yeah, CBS right. tour. <laughs> after that, we, did a, we toured in the States, and then... Uh, I think the, I know the first overseas thing we did was Japan, and that was like in the spring of '80. Right, I've got to have a uh, <clears throat> bootleg uh, copy of a show you guys did in Yokohama. <laughs> yeah, I got that. Yeah, or at, at where? At, I think it was in Yokohama. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, know that was fun to see. Yeah, it, yeah. It's you know I keep hoping more live stuff will turn up. Unfortunately, that was back <laughs> before everybody had a video camera. You exactly. Know? Yeah. We just missed that by about five years, or there'd be a lot more stuff of of us yeah. and, you know, in our natural habitat. But, uh, what I loved about that video was, was Steve Percaro's energy. I mean, he oh, was yeah. just dancing around like a, like a machine. He was... Sherman. <laughs> What's that? We called him Sherman. Sherman? Like, like, uh, uh, Bullwinkle. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the glasses. You know, but to your point, you know, you, you said, hey, you know, when you started working with these guys in the first album, there was like a, you know, it was loose. It was fun. I mean, you know what? That comes across in even those early videos. Right. You guys were having a ball. You guys weren't just playing. You guys were having a ball, you know? Yeah. And even though everybody was doing their own little thing, there's David Hungate in the middle. You know, I'm just cranking, you know? <laughs> everybody is dancing, <laughs> doing their on. own goofy thing, and, and there's Dave just you know, pounding away, you know. Yeah, yeah that was me with my double neck <laughs> That's right. I remember that. That's wonderful. Well, um, you know, I'd like to fast forward a little bit and, um, you know, go to the Total 4 album. And uh, went multi-platinum, you know, the big songs and so forth. Uh, you guys got your Grammy. Yeah. And uh, gee whiz, uh, 
that that must have been one of one incredible, you know, for a bunch of young guys, you know, a sense of accomplishment. Get up there and you know you have the record of the year. Yeah, it was, and uh, you know it's weird for me because I I was already living in Nashville. You mm-hmm. know? Like I quit I quit the band before Toto Four came out. Okay, so you know, I'd, and I I we my wife and I just had another kid, and I was getting a career going here, and you know, and like I said, I I like to stay at home, so. Yeah. Anyways, you know, I, I said I think it's best if I kind of bail out at this time. So here I am up there getting Grammys, and I'm not in the band anymore. It's like, what's that's the dumbest thing anybody ever did. You know? <laughs> I was going to ask it you, what out, a... <laughs> you know, at this point in time, it worked out okay. You know, right. it's, it's totally fine. But but what a way to go out, huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mixed uh, mixed uh, <laughs> message. But yeah, it was great. And the Toto opened, of course, opened a lot of doors for me. You know, even in Nashville, you know, it was a, you know, a lot of the country guys kind of, they didn't know I was from Missouri, you know, so it was going to be like Iggy Pop or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Who the heck is a little adjustment period there, but. Uh, <laughs> Well, I had the good fortune to see you perform with Toto, but this particular performance was in Nashville, and it was back on December first, oh, right. December first of ninety nine. Yeah, it was almost you know sixteen <laughs> years after you left the band, and sure. you know as a longtime Toto fan, this this for me was a pretty magical night because I had no idea you were going to be there. Oh, it was for me too, man. And, uh, that was, uh, yeah, and I was that the first time you had rejoined them the for any time I played live with them was like at the Calaveras Pop Festival and. June of eighty, you know, it's the last time I, I wow. played a, a live gig, oh, and, uh, and and you know we kind of lost touch over the years. There were some some disagreements about royalties, which were not was not their fault or mine, you know. But it was just one of those weird things. And sure, hadn't really been smoothed over. And uh, a friend of mine from Nashville, Buddy Hyatt, was singing backgrounds with Toto. That's right. That's and, right. Uh, so he had a party at his house, and he got us all together again for the first time in you know in years, and uh, it was great, man. You know, it's it was like you know everything's cool again, and I, you know I went in and went and played on a tune with him, and uh, yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, it was big fun. That's cool. Well, if you're interested, I uh, I had a photographer's pass that night, and I shot some really cool shots of you and oh, you uh, did? and Luke. Cool. And, I, and actually, they're up on the Toto ninety nine website. Oh man! I sent them oh. sent them over to those guys, but I can get you some copies of those if you want them. That'd be great. I can yeah. you know, I can get on the website. I don't know if I can download them and print them off of there, but uh, no, I'll get you I'll get you a copy. That'd be wonderful. Yeah. Man. Mm-hmm. Oh, I appreciate that. Well, Toto's thirtieth year anniversary is coming up, and. How about uh, that? Gee, can you imagine where all the time goes? Um, but there's some rumors flying around that you know, okay, you know, maybe some past members and or current members uh, for an anniversary tour, and uh, you know, this is only a rumor, you know. Well, and, hey, well, put but, in a good word you know, for me. I will. You know, <laughs> I, that was my next question. And if you, if somebody asked you, would, would you like say, "Hmm, this sounds cool"? Yeah, I would. I would have to learn that stuff again, man. Yeah. You know, there's a couple guys in town, who, several who are young studio guys here who are total Toto freaks. It's yeah. A, this drummer Shannon Forrest is just a genius, and Jeff idolizes right. him. And uh, piano player Gordon Moat, and they—they they, whenever they're together, man, between takes, it's all Toto all the time. <laughs> you know? I'm, I'm in there, and they're wanting me to play the bass parts, and I kind of remember half of them. Right. Know? But uh, it well, would be great. It would be great just to be able to see the see the guys. Yeah. You know. Have you heard the new album, by the way? No, I haven't. Really? No, I haven't. I. Uh, I don't think they get them in uh, 
in Nashville yet. We're gonna, we're, 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 me and <laughs> what Rick label will, is that? That's their label, right? It is their label, and uh, you know, I guess David uh, Page. Uh, I heard him talking about it, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll pick that up, man. I, I, I'd love to hear what it's very cool. I think you're going to be re- really satisfied with it. It's uh, David's very happy with it. So, yeah. hey, David, um, do you mind if we spend a couple minutes uh, chatting about Jeff Carl? No. Um, the the Toto Network. Have you, have you are you familiar with the Toto Network? I heard about it. I haven't been on it yet. Well, they've um, you know just uh, I think it was what back in August fifth was the anniversary of Jeff's passing, and yeah. they were um, my birthday. Is it your birthday? Yeah. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, they they were spending some time you know tr- doing some tribute material for for Jeff, and you know and. Uh, and that's that's one of the reasons the impetus for us contacting Paige was to have him chat about Jeff a little bit. Right, exactly. and we just wanted to ask you a few questions about Jeff, and you know, almost anyone who appreciates excellence in musicianship can appreciate you know his talent. Mm-hmm. You know, you had a special thing happening when when you would play with him. What was it about your vibe and groove when you both played together? Yeah. Well, you know, I as I told you, uh, you know, my favorite kind of music was like swing and and like earlier types of music and I think that had I mean Jeff commented you know he, when the track was feeling good once I say oh man it swings you know and, and mm-hmm. I think that was that was it I, I just kind of feel things a little different than than, than some people and uh, uh, you know Jeff tended to play right in the middle of the beat and you know just drive it and I I got to where I would tend to lay back a little bit, you know. There's a tension there. That's that's part of the thing, and uh, you know, and a little bit of the pushing and pulling. You're saying, yeah, yeah. It's, uh-huh. it's not. It's nice. It's like a constant, constant yeah. little tension there, where I'm I'm kind of leaning back, and he's in the middle, and you know, that you know, it depends on the track and the part of the track you're talking about, but just fundamentally that. That's part of it, you know, and I can remember when when we really got good at playing together. It was in about '78, you know. I remember feeling that way. You know, I could lay back in in a pocket, and he's not going to let it go too far back, you know. And it would just just be right. Yeah. We did we did several albums, and Jeff and I talked about this. There was uh, we oh, we did the Airplay record with Foster and Grade. Yeah. Yeah. And a record for Graydon with a guy named Colin Blundstone hmm. and uh uh Pointer Sisters I think and uh Diana yeah. Ross with uh, Baby It's Me. Uh there's like maybe a dozen albums we did together right in that time period. Wow. Or just you know Jeff and I used to talk about that being like a magical little <laughs> time yeah. right. before click tracks and drum machines and you know, we just kind of really gotten our shit to get together as far as playing with each other. You know, and yeah. Jeff made everybody pay attention. You know, that's just not just me. Uh, well, maybe other. You know, he made me pay attention because uh, he was like the standard. You know, of uh, of what was making it and what wasn't it. And if if it was making it, he was the most enthusiastic guy in the world, and he praised everybody. And if it wasn't making it, he could be the most sarcastic son of a bitch you ever saw, man. You know, he'd draw a cartoon of somebody, you know. And just, so you wanted to, you wanted to be good <laughs> yeah. to make Jeff happy and and, uh, and not, uh, you know, not get cut down, you know. Well, what would he react like if, 
if something wasn't right and you just can't get it right? I mean, what? Uh, give a, give us a little bit about it. Well, his... early on, you know, early on, and I've heard Paige talk about this. You know, he would he would say, "I know the perfect drummer for this track," and he mm-hmm. would call another drummer, Mike Baird or Penny or something. <laughs> I love that story. Over here, you know, and, <laughs> and praise him to the to the heavens, you know, which is totally great, you know. Yeah. And other times, man, he set his drums on fire one time, set off the sprinkler system at the uh, Armin Steiner studio, sound lab. Are you serious? He used to pad his toms with these little rags, you know, and he had these rags taped all over his toms, man, and he was disgusted, and he just took a cigarette lighter and lit them all and got up and walked out and set off the sprinkler system. It's a true story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh my God. God. Wow. And then he, uh, oh, he did total rehearsals by... Uh, take a drumstick and just stab through all his drum heads and get up and walk out you know that was, it. That's it was dramatic. I'm finished right it was dramatic in every way wow. you know? and, and guys have asked me about just to describe Jeff's playing you know guys that haven't haven't never got to play with him you know Martin Mull had a line that talking about music is like dancing about architecture you know it's really hard to to describe some musical in words but the best analogy I can come up with is to photography. You know, mm-hmm. like how uh, first time I sat down and played with Jeff before I knew it was him, I, I I sensed this. It was like all of a sudden everything is in focus for the first time. The snare is sharp. You know, it's just it's like the difference between an Ansel Adams, one of those beautiful landscapes mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. it's got beautiful composition and the subject matters great. And it's perfectly in focus, man. And, and you know, uh, just about... Jeff's the only other guy I played with that had that. Everybody else is just a little bit out of focus or the composition maybe a little bit off or the subject matter. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. It was... It was, uh, it, it was honest. And everybody who's played with him has that same... I've never heard anybody who's worked with Jeff who disagree with that. It was, it was just the guy, you know. He was, uh, and he was the one everybody looked to, to you know, to yeah. for affirmation. And uh, he kind of uh, kept me going, man. He was one of those those few geniuses I've encountered, you know. When mm-hmm. you come when you come from Troy, Missouri, when you leave town, they issue you an inferiority complex. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm carrying this around with me. All especially I got to Hollywood and heard these thirteen year old mothers, man. Jeff and these guys, and Jeff, man, he was my biggest booster. You know, he kept me going. He's he's the guy that always told me I was plenty good enough to play with him. Yeah, you know? and, and you know, you can't uh, really quantify the value of that kind of thing. It's, right. it's too great. And uh, you know, just and, like and, you know, in in the twenties with the early jazz guys, there was the big Spiderbeck was like this brilliant trumpet player. And he just kind of inspired a whole school of musicians, Benny Goodman and the Dorseys and all the Artie Shaw, all these great musicians. And when he died, he died like he was 28. They were lost, man. You know, it was kind of, it left a huge hole. And the same thing when Charlie Parker died. He was like, yeah. the bebops, beboppers all looked at Charlie Parker for what's happening, you know, yeah. what's he up, what's... And it's the same thing with our our guys, our little generation there, and Jeff. Man, when he when he left, you know, we all had to figure out how to keep going. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I it was I got a double whammy, man. The same month that Jeff passed, 
Larry London, who was like yeah. the drummer in Nashville, who was kind of took me under his wing and was a great player, too. Uh-huh. He passed away within uh-huh. a month, both those guys. And I'm wow. like, man, what am I going to do? I'm not going to play music anymore, you know? So uh, you had to kind of, you had to go on, man, which is, you know, it's what they'd want, you know? Sure. And, and this, you know, I just feel so lucky to have, have gotten to... Uh, to uh, work with with guys like that. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, you did you did pick up and and you go you know you you um, you were successful because you know like you said you you at the time you exited you were in already in Nashville, yeah. and uh, you know session work was opening up with you. I mean, guys, it was yeah, Kenny you Rogers. Gotta, you know, you got to pay the rent, so you keep going. You sure. Know, and gradually, it, it gets better. You know, but mm-hmm. um, anyway, I've. I just can't say enough good things about Jeff, and and uh, I got an email from his widow on his birthday last spring, and uh, hmm. she was talking about his kids. Man, are really musical, and yeah. you know, writing and playing drums and guitar, and you know, I I just love to see him, man. And I think the oldest one is uh, was sixteen, and. Hmm. And my youngest son is like 23, and that's the same age Jeff and I were, you know, the first time we met. You know, well, how cool it would be to get those guys together. But. Yeah, really. It's, it's uh, he's he's dear in everybody's hearts, and and um, gee whiz, at least we have, you know, the music that we can go back oh, and yeah. just say, hey, let's groove, let's I turn have to on. I do that once in a while, man. You do know, you? Like every six months or so, I yeah. I go down in my studio and shut the door. And, uh-huh get the vinyl out and turn the speakers up as loud as they'll go sure. and uh, just dig Jeff. No doubt. You know, yeah, as loud as I can. And, <laughs> and he's there, man. Yeah. While that record's playing, he is there. Yeah. Yep. So, That's you know. awesome. Um, I want to talk, I want to fast forward a little bit because you've, let's just say, you know, you, you've been working in Nashville for, for several years. But after doing everything, even in Nashville, Ricky Lee Jones, Kenny Rogers, Glenn Campbell, you've worked them, with them all. But there came a time in 90 that uh, you sort of started a, a, a project called Souvenir. And yeah. uh, it was your, your solo album, of which me and me and Rick have sort of been devouring that over the past few oh, weeks. Yeah. And it's, it's beautiful. I've been trying to buy up all existing <laughs> <laughs> I've got a garage full of them. Yeah. But, yeah, that, well, that was the last time I got to record with Jeff. So it was really, yeah. really, and, and not the last time with Larry London, but Larry's on it, too. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Randy Goodrum and... Uh, that came. I was offered that, you know. That a uh, friend of mine, Robin Crow, uh, yeah, kind of a new age guitar player, and uh, I played on his stuff, and he got his record label to give me a budget, you know, to do this thing. And uh, they wanted a new age record, and I said, well, it's okay if I have some melodies too, you know. So, <laughs> so it's a new age record with some melodies, but yeah. uh, there's some there's some nice stuff on it. It's uh, well, Robin Crow plays on it too, doesn't he? Yeah, he played on it, yeah. co-produced it, right. Yeah, and uh, co-wrote a couple of the songs. So, right. you know, it's uh, I have mixed feelings about it. It's not at this point. I wish I'd you know done something else while I had Jeff in the studio. But it's, he sure played great on it, man. On the fade, on that uh, one of that. Uh, uh, forget the title, man. Right. Uh, there's a long tune and uh, like the up-tempo tune on the tr- on the track. Sure. He gets into some stuff on the very end of the fade. That's you know. Uh, it'd make Art Blakey jealous, you know. <laughs> Jeff said he couldn't play jazz, you know. Right. Did he enjoy that project? 
Jeff? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, we hadn't seen each other that much. I flew back from Nashville to do it, you know, and uh, and it was we overdubbed him, you know. That's what right. I'm talking about. I, right. you know, I should have done it live, but we're in a little bitty studio, and so we'd done uh, sequences, and he came in and overdubbed and played great, you know. Did you did you do the same with uh, with uh, with Luke? Yeah, because he played some. Uh, yeah, over- he played on that and uh, Brandon Fields and. Uh, Chet Atkins, you was yeah, yeah, yeah. Chet played on it, man. Now, Souvenir released in in 1994. Is that right? Yeah, I actually recorded it in the late 80s. Okay, yeah, I was wondering about the time span there. Yeah, so Jeff Jeff was he played it, yeah, and uh, yeah. Interesting, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, interesting. You know, I think. Um, my goodness, good project. All we can say is good Thanks. project. Uh, I'm, I'm going to do another one that'll be very different. One yeah, of these days, but mm-hmm. I won't be able to get Jeff. Yeah, he's playing somewhere, man. Yeah, man, he's playing a great gig right mm-hmm. now. So I want to um, to to sort of spin off into one other little thing. And uh, me and you were talking a little bit about right before the interview about uh, someone you've been collaborating with uh, uh, for a while now, April sure. Barrows. Yeah. And who's a who's a great Nashville musician and songwriter, but she has got such a neat style. You've worked on the last uh, two projects you've produced and you've written with her. And yeah. explain her style. It's really beautiful, almost like a crooner type it's, of. I you know we kind of have come up with classic pop, you know, yeah. or traditional pop. It's like pop from the '30s or '40s. Yeah, and we try to. It's there's nothing camp about it. it you know, it's totally serious. And, yeah, uh, we kind of try to. Do it authentically, only with you know better sounds in a lot of cases. But right. uh, she's just one of those unique artists. She's uh, she listened to a lot of the uh, Boswell sisters and mm-hmm. Mildred Bailey and I.B. Anderson and some of these people are obscure now, but they were sure. huge in the '30s. You know, older right. style uh, vocalists from back then. And she's a big Ella Fitzgerald fan and uh, just loves that kind of music. And I do do too you know she's she's the only other person i know who who knows as much about it as i do and we can be listening to an fm radio station playing that and she'll say yeah that's ben webster on the tenor solo well you know a lot, a lot of people have tried in the past great vocalists you know women guys or whatever and to 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 sort of duplicate 30 style music and to reinvent but when she you know when i've listened to some cuts of the of these albums i mean she, it's her. I mean, yeah, it's her. Yeah, it's, she, her she, she, you it's know, like her the, natural, that's you know, key. arena. That's where you the know? Diana Krall thing is right. different, you know, because it's you know, April writes the tunes and it's really mm-hmm. she's got a great perspective on songwriting and yeah, you know, we just uh, we just did tracks for uh, another record back in May with uh, Evan Christopher and Duke Heiker, these two young horn players from New Orleans, hmm. and they're just they're as into that. Era as horn players, wow. as she is as a writer and singer. I mean, they. Wow. It's not like they're beboppers or, or Miles Davis yeah. freaks who are trying to back up, you sure. know, and, and edit themselves so it'll be authentic. That's that's just the way they play. That's, that's just who they are, yeah. And uh, so we're finishing that up, and uh, hope to have it out early next year. But I'm I'm really excited about that. How are you? Produ- I mean, as a producer, I mean, you're, you're writing with her too. There's some several cousins you wrote. Write, yeah, we write together, and and I do 
the arranging and mm-hmm. you know, play guitar. And we do. By the way, the horn arrangements are impeccable. They're, they're, oh, they're beautiful. You, I mean, I, that, that's... I, I really, you'll, you'll like the next one because I used like five horns instead of three. So it, <laughs> it of, of, of which people... I may, wish I had done that sooner. Right. Yeah. Of which a lot of people maybe in, in our uh, that are listening to the podcast may not even know that you play the trombone. You, oh, yeah, I mean, that's I mean, my you, original act. That that's uh, yeah. what what don't you play? Okay, yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, you said you're a horn play player. Trombone. That's what <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, you, you you mentioned earlier that you know you're a horn player and so forth, but I think uh, most Toto fanatics out there would say David Hungate is Jesus is playing trombone in sessions. I mean, it happened. You, you do yeah. a really great job. Well, thank you, man. I. Uh... Yeah, that was my original axe. My dad was a sax player. You know, mm. he worked his way through Missouri U and Harvard Law School playing sax and dance bands back in the 40s. And uh, he took me to hear him play when I was like five years old. My mom took me to this country club, and I didn't see my dad all night long. I just totally focused on the trombone player. He was the loudest thing there, probably why, but, you know. Yeah. And so about it, you know, they gave me a trombone when I was like five years old. <laughs> and... Uh, then I started, when I was 11, I started taking lessons with a guy in the St. Louis Symphony. They'd drive me to St. Louis 60 miles there and back wow. once a week. And it's incredible. Uh, I was going to be a trombone major when I got to college, and uh, I had gotten hit in the mouth with a baseball and kind of messed up my chops, and I'd never really recovered, but I haven't given up, man. I'm still, <laughs> <laughs> still in there trying. I'm still, still a frustrated horn player. You know, I, I give up all the other stuff if I could be a great trombone player. So you you may inevitably end up as your last gig as the symphony player, trombone tr- trombone player. Well, that's what I wanted to be as a kid, yeah. Jeez. Now, you mentioned a second ago your dad was a, a sax player. Yeah. But wasn't he also a, a former United States congressman? Yeah, he, was a, he introduced the second article of impeachment for Richard Nixon. That's his... Really? Great. Yeah, he was on the Judiciary <laughs> Committee last time. Well, time before last, they had an impeachment. Oh. Then he was a federal judge until after that, until 92, and now he's he sits home and writes books. Well, wow. Yeah, he's written four books since then, so he's a, he's a trip. Is he still around? Oh, yeah. Wow, well, yeah, we wish him... Yeah, he'll be 84 uh, next month. He's well, writing books, Eddie. Yeah, he is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, he's written. He's working on his fourth. Oh, well, we uh, wish him good health there. You know, that's yeah. awesome. Well, yeah, I hope I inherited some of it. <laughs> I didn't take as good a care of myself as he did. Probably. So he never really encouraged you to politics or law, right? <laughs> no, man, I wasn't smart enough, and he knew it. You know, but he, he knew I. He knew I. He saw this thing I could do, which I had a little musical talent. So, man, he he encouraged me like like nobody's business. It's just. Uh, He's the other guy that I owe probably the more, more than anybody for anything I've done. Cause yeah. he, we're in Troy, Missouri, and there's no not a lot of great musicians around. But, man, the ones that were there, he made sure he brought them over to the house. And they played that. for me, and I played for them, you know, he, all kind of stuff. And he, he brought, he, there's a black piano player, old guy, Johnny Miller, who worked for The Undertaker, and he played blues piano and sang, and he'd bring Johnny over there, and we'd play. And then there was this 90-year-old fiddle player who'd been doing dance jobs before the turn of the century. Sure. Bring him over, and <laughs> you know, and he'd take me to these... Uh, when his friends were doing dance jobs, he'd take me around, and he had to make me sit in. I wouldn't. I didn't want to play, you know. I didn't want to sit in. I was <laughs> shy. But, you know, he, he just... Uh, you know, he'd take me down to Mel Bay's and buy me guitars, and whether I wanted them or not, you know, he's that kind of dad. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, 
and he you know he brought home these I think he read the New Yorker magazine he'd read their record reviews and sure. he'd bring home this hip stuff man with Bob Dylan Highway 61 and Joan Baez's first record and wow. Eric Dolphy and all this outside different kind of stuff you know so I got a real broad appreciation of music from him well that's neat and then he played piano he'd, he'd come home from the office every day and open a beer and sit down at the piano and play out of a fake book you know so I learned all these <laughs> from him and I'd play along so that's great he was cool well from Troy Missouri to Nashville and you know yeah. We don't know where you're going to end up, yeah, but man. I hope it's here. Oh, jeez, you had a, a wonderful uh, uh, career. I don't know what you've planned in it or not, but it, it fell the way it fell, and it turned yeah. up uh, being a, a wonderful uh, piece of uh, creation that you've uh, you've given a lot of us to appreciate in your work. Well, I, I, I appreciate it, man. I've been really, really lucky, and you know, I have a lot of thanks to some uh, really exceptional people. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, that. Uh, and it's not false modesty. I got a lot to be uh, humble about. Very good. Hey, Dave, thank you so much for spending time with me and Rick yeah, today. Thank you. Yeah, so much. man, it's it's been great. I, you guys, any time. Sounds I'm here. Good. All right. I thanks a lot. That. Okay. All right. Take care. Take care, Dave. Bye. Thanks again to David Hungate for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Our goal is to bring you a new podcast once every other week. So be sure to check your podcast downloads for the next episode of Inside Music Cast. If you have a question or a suggestion for the show, please drop us an email at input at insidemusiccast.com. That's input at insidemusiccast.com with one C. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Stay subscribed to Inside Music Cast, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for downloading Inside Music Cast, the podcast devoted to the musicians, fans, and the people who make the music business happen. Your subscription is appreciated, so be sure to check your podcatcher for our next episode. You can also visit InsideMusicCast.com for additional content. If you'd like to contact us via email, the address is input at InsideMusicCast.com. 